Welcome to the Everybody Assumes podcast. I'm your host, Mishulam Unger. Here, we try to unpack the most complex events of our political era through the eyes of a 19-year-old absolutely fascinated by politics and history. In this episode, I speak with Zev Carlin Newman, a former speechwriter to then-Senator Kamala Harris, Susan Rice when she was National Security Advisor in the Obama White House, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president. We'll be talking about how he approaches the art of articulating someone else's voice, what happens when a speechwriter disagrees with their boss, what the hardest speech he ever wrote was, and lots more. On a separate note, I want to apologize for the not-so-great sound quality on this episode, was recorded on Zoom, and as you uh, uh, would imagine, the uh, sound quality was not great. This episode is still a special behind-the-scenes look at what makes one of these presidential candidates or uh, high-ranking uh, uh, national security officials uh, successfully articulate uh, policy and win votes. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, Zev. Thanks so much for taking the time to do Everybody Assumes podcast. Sure, happy to be here. Uh, just to give a little background on you before we start, you were Mayor Pete Buttigieg's chief speechwriter on the 2020 campaign trail. Uh, you were also Senator Kamala Harris's top speechwriter in the Senate. And your first job in the government was on the National Security Council, helping write then National Security Advisor Susan Rice's speeches, in addition to others in the White House, um, including President Obama. You started as a speechwriter in the uh, uh, in the House of Representatives and also at the firm West Wing Writers, and you went to Stanford for undergrad. So as you can see, you've been a speechwriter for a while. So without going into too much detail yet on any of your former bosses, how do you approach the challenge of uh, uh, capturing another person's voice? It's a, it's a good question, and, and thanks, uh, Michelle, for having me having me on to, to your podcast. Um, you know, I think the the best way to try to capture um, the voice of someone you're writing for is to spend as much time with them as possible. Um, and obviously, that's that's not always uh, an option. You know, these are these are typically busy people, and um, not everyone can be in all the meetings that they that they have. Um, so, you know, I think in the absence of being able to just be a fly on the wall, um, you know, I try to, uh, you know, read um, or, or watch, um, you know, speeches, uh, you know, appearances they've done. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the folks who, uh, who have speechwriters, um, you know, when you get to that level, you've probably been in the public eye a decent bit. You know, you've, you've spoken at conferences, you've given commencement addresses, you've, you know, been on The Daily Show. Um, so, you know, going to, to YouTube and, and just trying to, um, listen to, you know, how someone, uh, how they talk, um, you know, how they, how they respond to questions, um, uh, you, you know, if they've written op-eds or, you know, books, a lot of, a lot of these folks, you know, may have a memoir or a policy book, uh, as well. And, and that can be very, um, illuminating. Um, and at the end of the day, you're sort of trying to figure out, um, not just how they speak, but, but how they think. Um, and, and I think those are all ways you can try to try to get a little clearer sense of, um, you know, when when there's a given issue, how does the person I'm, I'm writing for think about this? Got it. Yeah. So in your view as a speechwriter, what's the best way for policymakers, politicians, you know, even CEOs 
to use um, speeches uh, within a broader strategy, whether to you know get a business deal, uh, articulate a policy vision, uh, or to get votes on a campaign trail? Yeah, so I mean, I think that um, you you want to rally people, right? You're you're using speeches very often as as some kind of call to action, um, you know, to get people to appreciate, you know, why this is uh, the best, you know, the best policy, uh, you know, to to ensure that every American has health insurance or to you know prevent Iran from getting a, a nuclear weapon. Um, and so, you know, you to a certain extent, speeches can be useful um, in the policymaking process because it does uh, force you to, um, you know, to really, if you're putting it on paper, you have to understand, you know, what what it is that you stand for. And so at some, in some cases, uh, it can be useful um, in actually fleshing out what the policy is. You know, there's some, some uh, different, you know, uh, policy folks, advisors may have some different ideas and you say, okay, well, I'm speaking here and we want to, you know, announce that we are, you know, at least doing something, you know, that we're in the early stages of, you know, of rolling something out. And, you know, even just the, uh, the few lines you may want to use um, in a speech to, you know, announce that, you know, we're, we're working on X problem, you know, can, can turn into um, trying to understand, you know, what is it that we're really saying? And, you know, this is where maybe ideological factions or, you know, people with different ideas, you have to kind of, uh, you know, have a meeting in the mind so that you can come out and, and say that. Um, but, you know, I think more broadly, more often, the, the best way for policymakers to do speeches um, is is really once you know you know what you're trying to achieve you know you you want people to vote for you uh, you know for president you want them to support your bill um, and you know you you want to get out there and uh, persuade as many people as possible um, you know to support you and if the goal is electing yourself then you know your your call to action is is vote for me if you know you're trying to get them to support some legislation then. Um, you know, you're you're asking, uh, you're, you're trying to explain why this is, you know, the best the best policy, you know, the best bill, um, you know, how it'll help, uh, you know, your audience, their families. Um, you know, in some cases, you uh, may go over that, right? If your if your immediate audience is, you know, an intransigent Senate, um, sometimes, you know, a floor speech to those senators who aren't really listening may not. Be as useful as you know if you're the president, uh, you know, going to a state uh, that you know, like, depending on what happens in Georgia in in a month or two, um, you could have a situation where um, you know there's a Georgia Republican senator and uh, you know Georgia electorate that also voted for you know President-elect Biden, and if he's trying to get uh, you know David Perdue's vote on something, you know he could. He could go to Georgia and say, you know, you guys voted for me. You know, there are people here who maybe voted for me and David Perdue. And, you know, this is why I want him to do something. Um, so it can be useful to kind of try to uh, go over people's heads sometimes, um, uh, you know, to, to try to uh, push some legislation through. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think broadly you are you're using speeches. Um, the, the best way to use them is to really articulate what it is that you, you uh, stand for and what you're asking um, you know, uh, your, your audience to support, um, mm -hmm. if that, if that makes sense. So, um, 
if you're writing a speech on a on a very contentious issue, you probably wrote it on the Iran deal, on the campaign trail. Many everything seems contentious because um, of the, the media attention. Um, you're obviously working with you know either political or policy advisors. Um, how do you uh, like strike a balance uh, in articulating um, the vision? And you also have to work out that vision with uh, the with the boss and um, sort of getting the views together um, into the document. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's always a process, um, and it depends where. Uh, you know, where if you're working in government at a place like the NSC, um, you you have a lot of views. And um, I think one thing that's useful is that, uh, you know, as a speechwriter, um, you get to sort of be the keeper of the principal's voice. And so, you know, you'll have people coming to you and saying, you know, oh, like the president has to talk about steel dumping in this speech or, um you know, this pet initiative that I have, like, let's, you know, let's spend two paragraphs on it. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you, I think, obviously want to always try to, you know, be, be inclusive and, and, you know, not summarily dismiss, you know, smart people who have good ideas. But um, in a lot of respects, you know, the, the speechwriter is sort of the, the traffic cop whose job it is to like, you know, keep things moving, understand, you know, what the objective is for the speech and like, you know, to be able to say, you know, that's a great, pet project you've, mm -hmm. you've got there and you know maybe maybe there's another speech where we can you know say a lot more about that but you know in this particular case you know what i think uh you know the national security advisor or the senator whomever you know really wants to you know focus on is this and and so you get you know sometimes it means being the bad cop but um you know it's sort of your job to try to uh absorb um all the different you know inputs the you know people who may have uh you know competing views um and you know, try to sort of synthesize it in the way that you think the person you write for, you know, understands the issue. And if you know that, you know, they really value, um, you know, one particular uh, advisor's, you know, worldview, you probably, you know, uh, you know, well advised to, you know, try to include a lot of that. You know, there are times where, you know, you get some some people who are maybe calling outside the lines, you know, they're like, well, this is, this is great, but, you know, you're the Middle East guy weighing in on Asia. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I'll take it into advisement, but I'm not necessarily going to let that, you know, be the, the controlling, you know, idea or something in the speech um, and really just try to, yeah, bring it all together, figure out, you know, how does, how does each, uh, you know, input, uh, you know, help us make the case that we're trying to make. Um, and, you know, and then you, you uh, bring it to the principal and, and they obviously will have their, uh, their, their views. And, you know, then you can go back and say, you know, to the senior director for, you know, Iran, mm -hmm. we want more on this. And, you know, can you help, uh, can you help bring, um, yeah, bring us, you know, some more, some more info on, on this particular ask. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it can be hard, especially when, when they're more contentious issues. Um, you've got, you know, you've got a lot of big egos and, and smart people to manage. And I think the, the end goal is always to kind of uh, keep your eye on the prize of, you know, what are we trying to achieve with this speech and to sort of try to slough off the extraneous stuff that, that will arise in that process. Got it. So obviously the investment to do a, a job like being the speechwriter for the national security advisor for Kamala Harris is massive, uh, a personal and professional commitment. Um, you obviously have personal political beliefs. How did you, um, 
uh, like pick your boss? Was it based on your personal uh, beliefs? Um, and did you ever feel like you had to compromise um, on your, you know, things that you really cared about, things that you, you know, went to protest for in college once you, you know, got your security clearance, the National Security Council or in the Senate or wherever? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, I think I've been pretty fortunate in that I've almost exclusively written for people that I agree with, um, you know, politically, uh, when I, when I was, um, writing, you know, when I was, uh, at Western writers and we had, you know, a very wide range of, of clients and some of them, you know, were CEOs and whatnot. I mean, you know, it would maybe happen that you were writing for a CEO on, you know, one issue and, you know, then they would like post a Romney fundraiser and, you know, you're like, okay, that's, you know, uh-huh. not necessarily my political leanings, but, um, the topic of the speeches I wrote were never, you know, like I'm pro-choice and I'm writing a speech on why abortion is evil. Like mm-hmm. it might be, you know, this is a moderate Republican who wants to talk about how sustainability should be a part of, you know, corporate mm-hmm. best practices. And they, you know, they, they may, you know, have voted, you know, differently than me in a, you know, in a past election or something, but in terms of actually, writing things that I disagree with. I think I've been, I've been pretty fortunate. Um, there, you know, you mentioned going to protests. Um, there was one time, uh, it was actually funny. I, I did, um, uh, there was a, a speech, um, that, uh, that Senator Harris was, was mm-hmm. giving at APAC. Um, and, um, I had worked with her on the speech and, and went to, you know, the speech with her, um, I had also um, uh, joined some some people who are who were protesting uh, around some of those events that weekend. Um, so you know, it was a situation where I had kind of, uh, yeah, I had both spoken both to the people in the, you know, who were going to be in the room, and then also uh, the people who were, um, you know, maybe outside and, and had some uh, some quarrels with with some of the you know policies or or practices, um, you know, that particular organization. Um, you know, but I think to the extent that I've ever disagreed with the principle, um, you know, I think there are certainly, you know, times in, you know, private when you're, you know, working on a speech where you might, you know, take issue with something. And it, mm-hmm. it usually, um, I, I try to stay within my lane. So for the most part, um, it, only on rare occasions can I think of times where I was trying to change someone's minds on policy as opposed to, you know, I think you should be saying it this way as opposed to this way. Um, but, you know, I think, I mean, it's impossible to find someone who, you know, agrees with you on a hundred percent of, you know, every, you know, on every issue. But I think, you know, I've, I've tried to work for, you know, pretty progressive Democrats where, um, you know, if there was one particular issue where I wish they, you know, were a little, you know, more to the left or, you know, not so far to the left on, you know, on uh, any given issue that, um, you know, I think I try to focus on the things where, you know, we do agree. Um, and, you know, if I'm in a position where I'm like writing specifically about something that, you know, I'm, I'm a little iffy about, um, you know, I think uh, you just try to kind of um, see the bigger picture, understand where they're coming from. You know, sometimes it's like, you know, if I were to write this op-ed myself, maybe I would, you know, come out differently. But, you know, 
there is a good case to be made. You know, here are a bunch of, you know, respected progressive economists who say that, you know, this plan will work well. And, you know, this other plan, you know, could also work, but has its own, you know, pros and cons. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's maybe a little trickier to be um, a complete purist. Like, you know, if you're, if you're going to quit, you know, if your boss, you know, differs on the exact decimal point of what the top income bracket, you know, should be like, you're going to have a hard time. But, you know, I think um, I've found it fairly easy to, you know, pick people that broadly you agree with, you understand where they're coming from and know that, um, you know, just like with friends or family, you know, you may have uh, people who, you know, you're going to, you're going to vote the same way in every election, but, you know, maybe you had, you know, slightly different, uh, you know, candidates in the primary because you liked this person's, you know, willingness to go bigger on this or, you know, this person's background, on, you know, on some particular issue. Um, and, you know, I think I, yeah, I, I, you know, I would have trouble writing for, you know, uh, uh, you know, most of the Republican Party right now. Um, and, you know, but I, and, and frankly, there may be some people uh, even within the Democratic Party that it would just be a little tougher because of, you know, the kind of constituents that they had to answer to and the way they had to, you know, maybe, uh, you know, sit back on some issues that I care about. Um, but yeah, I think finding, um, finding a way to kind of keep in mind the, you know, broadly we agree on, you know, 90% of these issues. And so let's, you know, not, not belabor the point, uh, you know, the 10% that maybe we, we might have, you know, some slight disagreements. Um, mm -hmm. That's sort of been how I've managed it. Um, On to your work for Ambassador Rice. Part of the, the role that Ambassador Rice played as national security advisor and that all national security advisors play is, um, is like part diplomat and part as a communicator about what the United States policy is, as you said. So how did you uh, work with her to uh, communicate the United States' displeasure with a specific country or position of a country uh, and that, that the United States was asking for a change, say, and um, but we didn't want it to be front page news, you know, in, in, the, in the home country's press that they, you know, leaders scolded by senior American fit official or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because in a way, if I was involved, um, you know, a decision had kind of already been made to, to be public, right? I mean, there's, if you're the national security advisor or, you know, any senior official, there are all kinds of lower profile back channel ways to, you know, convey displeasure, um, you know, and it could be a private phone call. It could be, um, you know, the seating chart, you know, at a state dinner, you know, shows that you have been moved to the kid's table or whatever. Um, you know, I think if you were going to make some kind of statement in public, um, you know, on, on the, yeah, on the occasions where maybe you were trying to, um, you know, send a, send a subtle message, but not have it be like, you know, so-and-so like raked over the coals. Um, you know, I think, I think you sort of try to, um, you know, we would try to acknowledge you know that maybe you understood you know that the politics of this is challenging or you know this is this is not an easy thing that we're asking um you know but um you know if we're talking about an ally you know often there would sort of be a resort to um you know just reminders of you know how we've stood shoulder to shoulder you know in every conflict from you know the american revolution to you know afghanistan or what have you but you know to sort of appeal to the fact that like you know we have a a deep and abiding relationship. Um, there was a, a speech I worked on um, 
uh, when um, the president went to uh, the uh, Canadian Parliament um, in in 2016, um, where um, you know there was uh, the the hope that Canada would be um, uh, you know, contributing a bit more to, to NATO. Um, you know, Donald Trump thinks he invented, uh, you know, pushing allies to, to up their, their contributions to NATO. And, um, you know, and there was sort of this, it, most of the speech is a love letter to, to Canada and all the stuff we've accomplished together, but, you know, folded within it, there is, you know, this, the world, you know, needs more Canada. Like we, you know, we've got all this great stuff and it'd be great to just get a little more out there. Um, and, you know, I don't think listening to it, you would feel that anyone was scolded. Um, uh, so, you know, I think if you sort of very diplomatically include, um, you know, lots of, lots of stuff that reminds people, you know, why, why we have some common goals and then, you know, can kind of subtly try to say, you know, it would be great if you do us a solid here or there. Um, it, it can hopefully go down in a way where, you know, it's heard, but it doesn't feel like you've been, uh, you know, reprimanded. Similar to how, you know, anybody really, you know, nicely uh, criticizes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's the, uh, the sandwich, right? Compliment yeah. someone, criticism, compliment. Yeah. Works at all levels. So yes. after after Trump won, uh, you went to work for then-Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, what was the, the change like from the White House to the Senate and also being in the opposition rather than the government? It's it's a big change, and and the one you mentioned, I think, is a, a key part of that. Um, you know, being in the minority is is always hard, um, and I think especially so um, when Congress as an institution is sort of as broken and dysfunctional as uh, as it has been these past uh, years. And so, um, you know, it's obviously when you're in the executive branch, you don't have unilateral authority on every issue, but um, you know, you you do have the ability to sort of quite a lot of conversation and right there are things you can do and you know absent legislation you can um, you know you can still uh, do a lot of things through executive action. You know the area that I was mostly involved with foreign policy is you know a place where presidents do have a lot of uh, unilateral authority and um, so you know to go to the Senate uh, you know in early 2017 you know with everyone still pretty pretty shell shocked by uh, you know the results of the election. Um, you know, it, it was hard. You, um, you know, are, are writing for one of 100 uh, senators, you know, one of 535, uh, you know, people in Congress. And, um, you know, so even uh, writing for someone like uh, then Senator Harris, who, you know, even, even then was seen as having a, a very bright future and, you know, had a pretty big platform, partly as a result of that, partly, you know, representing a state of almost 40 million people. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, California was very much kind of at the forefront of the resistance, um, you know, whether it was healthcare or, um, you know, crackdown on immigration, you know, all of all of these issues, climate change, um, you know, tend to, California tends to be very, you know, impacted, have sort of outsized, uh, you know, uh, you know, share um, in what's going on. And so, um, you know, it, it, it felt like, yeah, you were going to the opposition and, you know, this was sort of a, a rear guard action to try to preserve as many progressive gains as, as we could at a time when they were clearly going to be under, under assault. Um, and, you know, instead of uh, trying to figure out, you know, how you could, um, you know, 
advance certain policies, uh, though we you know, did what we could to have an affirmative agenda. A lot of it was, you know, this month they're trying to repeal healthcare. Like, let's write a lot of speeches, go to a lot of rallies, you know, explaining why that'd be bad. And next month they're trying to, you know, confirm a new Supreme Court justice. Let's give a lot of speeches about why this would be bad. Um, so it feels very, you know, reactive. Um, this administration in particular, outgoing administration, um, you know, it's kind of a new fire every day, you know, this happened with the Mueller investigation, you know, he, you know, made made this or that, you know, decision by tweet, you know, there's now a transgender, you know, ban in the military, maybe no one's sure if it's legal. Um, so there was kind of a lot of like, uh, yeah, just racing to put out, uh, you know, whichever fire, you know, crisis, crisis of the day, um, while also, you know, ideally trying to articulate, um, yeah, a more affirmative kind of uh, vision than just, you know, we oppose everything Donald Trump stands for. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we were trying to kind of, uh, you know, put forward a, a message that said, you know, this is, this is who we are as Democrats. This is, you know, the kind of country that we envision and, you know, people should be supporting our policies and, and, you know, our, our leaders. Um, but, it, you know, the day-to-day -day could certainly feel very much like, you know, a chicken with your head cut off, like just kind of waiting for, waiting for, for the next, you know, New York Times, uh, you know, article to drop that would suddenly mean you needed a new intelligence briefing because, you know, there was some new thing unfolding and figuring out like, okay, you know, now we're all rushing to the airport to, you know, uh, defend or, you know, protest this travel ban. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it was a pretty chaotic few uh, years for sure. Um, so you didn't join um, Senator Harris's presidential campaign, but you instead went to Mayor Pete first as a volunteer and then as a, a, a paid staff as a chief speechwriter. You had experience in DC, you worked for Harris, you worked for Obama, you worked for Rice, and then you go work for this mayor. Uh, the city's not even that big, you know, small national profile. Um, Why did you choose to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I didn't work for Obama until he was president, but you know, I was on that train like mm -hmm. in 2005 when you know he he had a lot of excitement, but you know was also you know relative to to Hillary at least the the perceived underdog. So I think on some level, I have I have maybe um, you know always appreciated. Um, you know, people who who don't have necessarily the exact uh, trajectory you might expect for for someone, um, you know, uh, auditioning to to be you know president or or, or you know in high office. Um, you know, I think for with Pete, in particular, um, you know, I just got really intrigued um, by him. Um, you know it was you know, Barack Obama had name checked him as somebody who thought, you know, couldn't be the future of the party. Frank Bruni was writing about, you know, this, you know, the first gay president. And, you know, there was, there was sort of some buzz there. Um, you know, I heard, actually, I read a speech he, he gave um, in Iowa. Um, it must've been 2018. It was, it was still a ways before things really uh, heated up and, um, you know, the, the shadow campaign was maybe underway, but um, it was still quite early. Um, and he just uh, he just transcended, I think, some of the normal um, boxes that um, that we're used to, and and just had a feel for sort of the 
texture of the country and who we were that just struck me as really unique. I mean, I remember him uh, talking about how, um, you know, the Midwest was sort of now a, a place of fascination and, you know, every, we were getting all these, you know, profiles of, you know, voters and diners and everyone, um, you know, he talked about it, you know, joked almost like, you know, sort of this anthropological fact, you know, almost like we're a different species, you know, what is the, what is the Rust Belt voter thing? And he sort of pushed back on that and was like, you know, that, um, you know, he, he was like, you know, I hope the pundits, you know, come to places uh, that are a lot more complicated than, you know, the ones that fit into their narrative. Um, you know, and in a way, this is sort of an echo of, uh, of Barack Obama's uh, 2004 keynote of, you know, we're not, not red states and blue states, you know, we worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we've got, you know, some gay friends in the red states really trying to kind of break down those, those binaries. And, you know, Pete was like, you know, talking about places like, um, uh, you know, the deer blind in a, you know, woods in Traverse City, Michigan, where I spent, uh, you know, Thanksgiving with my boyfriend's father, like, you know, the, you know, diner full of conservatives in, you know, Granger, Indiana, protesting the deportation of a man they knew to be a credit to his community, right? Like, but there was just an attempt to go beyond, like, um, you know, Republicans all believe this, Democrats all believe that, um, you know, and, and I think in a similar way to what drew me to Obama, just to recognize that people are, you know, more complex, more interesting, um, you know, they can, uh, you know, you can have a, a very socially conservative community like South Bend that can nonetheless, you know, vote for, uh, you know, by 80%, uh, uh, vote 80% for, uh, you know, a young gay mayor because, you know, he fixed up the city and did a lot of things that made their lives better. And so um, I think I just saw that there was uh, kind of a promise of, um, you know, something other than politics as usual, uh, an attempt to really um, bridge divides, not in a kind of like mealy mouth centristy way of like, let's just, you know, you're here, I'm here, let's just, you know, 50% the way, you know, split the baby, but like, you know, the way he talks about, you know, he would talk, you know, trying to reclaim words like freedom and saying, you know, yeah, like freedom is great, you know, but also, you know, there's freedom, you know, not just freedom from government, you know, but also freedom to, you know, live a life of our choosing, to get married, to, you know, not have this uh, company, you know, your credit card company cheat you and stuff. Um, and I think that reflected, um, yeah, this, this willingness, this ability to, um, talk to people like people, um, like, like adults. And, you know, I think I just thought it would be, it would be an adventure, um, however far it got. Um, you know, I think more prosaically, you know, there are some advantages when you have a candidate who is, who is new, who has a smaller, uh, you know, doesn't have layers and layers of kitchen cabinet advisors to just be able to, um, you know, be a little more, uh, involved in like, okay, well, you know, what do we think about these issues? You haven't, you know, as a mayor of South Bend, you probably haven't had to talk about, you know, Israel or some other things. So like, let's figure out what a foreign policy worldview that's true to you, you know, is um, instead of, you know, you've been in government for 40 years and, you know, you every topic under the sun you've already talked about and it's just a matter of, you know, dusting off a speech and, and recycling it. Um, so, you know, I think I felt like it was sort of, you know, an exciting project and, um, and, you know, for someone who is talking to the American people in a really uh, thoughtful and, and mature way that um, could allow us to, you know, maybe build something better than, than what we were uh, dealing with at the time. Got it. When you look back on 
Mayor Pete, you know, Senator Harris and Ambassador Rice and whoever, what do you say is the hardest speech that you wrote? <laughs> the last one, <laughs> just whichever, whichever speech I've just finished, usually, you know, it's like squeezing blood from the stone. Um, I, I could answer that a lot of different ways. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the one that I mentioned earlier, this, this speech that the president did to the Canadian parliament uh, that I, I, you know, had the privilege to, to be involved with. Um, you know, I think just whenever you are thinking about, you know, a country full of people, you know, listening to a speech, um, you know, whenever you're thinking about all kinds of different considerations, you know, diplomatic, economic, um, uh, you know, we were doing this speech, um, it was still during the primary. So um, Hillary, or yeah, I think, I think Hillary either had formally wrapped up the nomination or it was pretty clear that she was going to be the nominee, but, you know, Bernie um, had still, you know, run a strong campaign, you know, clearly had a, had a, Oh, you know, a strong following and was making, you know, arguments about things like trade that, you know, we were trying to discuss in, you know, kind of this international context, but mm -hmm. also um, it happened, it was right after Brexit. And there was sort of a sense that uh, even before Trump, like, you know, there was sort of uh, this attack on kind of the, the notion of, you know, globalization, you mm -hmm. know, further integration and connection between countries being, you know, a good thing. Um, and so trying to kind of square all those things, you know, be mindful of the domestic political context, you know, you want to, um, you know, dismiss uh, kind of Trump's, you know, fake populism, also recognize that there's a, you know, valid debate going on between, um, you know, all trade deals are bad because, you know, elites write things that just, you know, screw us, you know, ordinary people, and also not wanting to be in the like, you know, uh, there is nothing wrong with, you know, like let's outsource every job and, you know, only care about economic efficiency, um, you know, to be thinking about, um, yeah, just, you know, what's our relationship to, to a country, um, you know, like Canada that, you know, we, we obviously are quite close to, but they're, you know, their sources of tension, their sore points, um, you know, there's kind of stuff that they're proud of, you know, how do you, how do you make sure to focus on all of that? Um, but just, you know, it was uh, not for the, president, I'm sure, you know, would not be a speech he would, you know, think of as, as one of his hardest. It was towards the end. He was, you know, pretty practiced at that point. But um, for me, it was certainly, um, you know, it was, it was challenge. Um, I think of others that are hard for, for different reasons. Um, I mean, I guess the concession speech that, um, that uh, Mayor Pete gave when he was suspending the campaign was, was hard and kind of the, um, you know, you're not sleeping, you're really disappointed. Um, you know, you're trying to um, both, uh, you know, define victory in a way that your supporters can feel good. You know, look what we achieved going from, you know, four staffers in this, you know, office that looked like a dentist office to where we are now, um, you know, but also, um, you know, be gracious, um, you know, support, you know, the candidates that are continuing, um, you know, try to make clear that you intend to, you know, hopefully hang around and continue to influence the debate. Um, so, you know, you're, you're trying to accomplish a lot of things and, you know, you're doing it on very short notice, um, uh, you know, in a very different, I mean, uh, the mayor himself, like spent 
the first part of the day he suspended his campaign, like in Selma, you know, at the, the anniversary of the of the march, and you know, there was all kinds of other, you know, things and protocols and you know, uh, memories and, and reflections, you know, thinking that he's doing um, while also needing to get his head around, you know, uh, you've been running nonstop for you know a year plus, and now this thing is coming to an end. Um, so there's just a lot of emotion. Uh, involved in that, you know, not to mention just kind of the logistics of pulling together an event, you know, last minute. Um, so that was, yeah, that was hard on kind of a more sort of personal, emotional level. Um, and I think probably you talk to people on campaigns, um, I think, unless, unless they're wholly detached from the fortunes of their candidate, or it's been, you know, so clear for so long that it's no longer, you know, something of a shock, I think, you know, wrapping your head around uh, suspending your campaign or, you know, conceding is, is definitely um, you know Difficult. challenging and makes makes it a hard speech to to write um, just because you know of the headspace that you're in. Um, yeah. So just the final question on your speeches. Um, obviously, you come from a Jewish background. Um, can't hide <laughs> that. Um, did you uh, like to include sort of Jewish influences in speeches? Sometimes you need to if you're speaking at APAC or whatever. Some people do it anyways. Um, and if so, did you have like a, a book that you 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 especially like to use or a specific scholar that you refer to a lot? So, you know, certainly I've, I've written my fair share of speeches for Jewish audiences, um, you know, maybe on occasion a, uh, you know, some sort of Jewish humor or something might might inflect a speech to, you know, a, a Goyish audience, um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, for Yom Hatzmaut speeches and, you know, AJC and, and all of those. Um, uh, so my, my mom's a rabbi. Um, and so I, she's kind of my go-to uh, source often. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know about like a particular book, you know, uh, like I don't have Joseph Telushkin on the shelf or anything to, to pull off right now, but um uh, you know, a lot of times I just find myself Googling, you know, like, what's the Parsha this week? And, you know, sometimes, uh, like, I remember we did that um, for an AJC speech that Ambassador Rice did that, um, uh, you know, it was um, uh, coming up, you know, with the, the story of, of Ruth, you know, that that was either the Parsha we had just read or the, the upcoming one. And, and, you know, just there being a like, wherever you go, I will go as kind of a guiding theme um, for, you know, the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, and that was something, you know, I think it, it was mostly just Wikipedia and, and Google, but, um, uh, you know, and I'm fortunate. I, I, you know, in addition to having a, a rabbi for a mom, you know, I, I did, what, like seven years of day school or something. So, um, you know, I think those would kind of be my thing. Is there a holiday coming up? You know, is there a, you know, like there are some tropes that, you know, like Lador Vador makes it into a lot of U.S.-Israel speeches about how, you know, generation, our partnership endures, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, you know, sort of general Tikkun Olami type, uh, you know, things. I've, um, you know, had to had to do some pronunciation, you know, prep for, for some principles and stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so I think it's certainly fun um, to, you know, be in the situation. I think it's rare. I've written for a handful of folks, you know, in some cases who are um, uh, Jewishly literate enough that, you know, you can like, be like, well, Talmud Bavli says whatever, but, 
you know, there's kind of a, it has to feel authentic, you know, for, for Ambassador Rice to talk about uh, the first time she, you know, visited Israel as a teenager, perfectly reasonable, you know, you start getting too far down, like, you know. Uh, it looked like pandering or whatever. Yeah, just like not, not really believable, right? It sounds like, you know, some, some, you know, Jewish guy on your staff probably gave you this as opposed to, you know, uh, like, you know, we, for that AJC speech, um, you know, Ambassador Rice was kind of reminiscing when we were talking about the speech about, um, you know, growing up in Shepherd Park, which was a, you know, kind of black and Jewish neighborhood and, you know, seeing, you know, mezuzot on, on door frames and, you know, people walking to shul and that, um, you know, at a time when bat mitzvot were still pretty rare, she probably went to more than most girls who went to the National Cathedral School went to. And, um, you know, so that was kind of, you know, those are sort of the, the more authentic, uh, you know, ways to, I think, uh, connect to um, a, a Jewish audience. Um, but if you have, you know, a, a speaker who is Jewish, who like um, uh, Mayor Garcetti, you know, is, is actually pretty, um, you know, pretty literate. Um, and, you know, so he's someone who could probably drop a little Talmud. Um, Cory Booker is, is another who, uh, like, you know, former former head of Chabad in Oxford. And, you know, he, he doesn't just, you know, use the, the super uh, top line stuff. He, you know, he can offer you some, some drash that's, you know, a deep cut, which yeah. is always fun. Uh, you and but, you can tell. Yeah, you can. Yeah, um, yeah. So last thing, um, how did you did you think that you wanted to do this political speech writing thing um, when you were in high school or college? Is this something that you 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 knew, like you you wanted to you know sit at the White House and stuff like that? I mean, I think I started thinking about this um, when I was. In, in college, I, I always um, loved to kind of read and write. I think I imagined journalism, you know, might be mm -hmm. might be a career path. Um, you know, I, I mentioned my mom being a rabbi and I think, you know, hearing sermons that are, you know, it, it's a speech that isn't secular um, and, uh, you know, appreciating kind of the power of spoken words. Uh, yeah, that, that started to get me thinking about, um, you know, speech writing as a possible career. And I was um, I was uh, starting uh, undergrad, um, the beginning of the, you know, 08 campaign and seeing, you know, this guy, Barack Obama gives some some really good speeches. And at the same time, um, you know, I was studying uh, history and political science and, and reading, um, you know, great 20th century speeches, you know, JFK, FDR, MLK. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, helped me kind of appreciate the impact that, you know, speech could have um, uh, so, um, that was sort of, you know, uh, that was what got me to realize that, you know, you could, you, you could write about current affairs, not just as a journalist, but you could be sort of, uh, you know, on the other side, you know, writing at the intersection of politics and policy. Um, and that, that was kind of what, um, what sparked my, my interest. And then I, you know, was fortunate to, um, uh, you know, do a few, few Hill internships and find my way to, uh, uh, Western writers, um, through some very serendipitous, uh, you know, parents at a wedding met the former college roommate of uh, one of the partners there, and that's how I first got connected, and um, and then from there, you know, to the, the NSC and, and onwards. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's it's certainly been a an interesting um, ride, and and I think it's it's something I encourage people who are interested about, you know, interested in writing, interested in, in politics, um, policy. Um, to, to consider. Um, but 
yeah, for me, it was sort of seeing that um, words could have um, power and that the right, the right person um, with the right words could, could really um, help shape uh, the future of, of, you know, what our country looked like. Um, and that's, that's what got me excited about this. Seems you have quite the journey. Thank you. Um, I, hopefully it's, uh, it's just beginning. Um, you know, I'm still, <laughs> still got a long career ahead of me, I hope, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun so far. Um, but yeah, appreciate you, uh, taking the time to ask some questions. No problem. Thank you. I want to say again how appreciative I am to Zev for making the time to talk about speech writing, uh, how he does it, and about some of his former bosses who uh, all uh, are now in the Biden administration. As always, please like, rate, and share the podcast on social media and where you're listening to the podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And thank you again for listening.